Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. It's the ultimate tough mudder race, or really tough mother race. Millions of sperm make a break for the grandest of grand prizes, the egg waiting at the finish line. Like weekend warriors, some don't even make it off the starting line because of injuries or defects. Others hit that wall, you know the one, where you just run out of energy and can't make it. Some get stuck in a sticky gauntlet meant to sort out the strong for the weak. And then there's one last sprint. This is it, winner takes the egg. Until now, scientists have thought this race to the egg was largely random, but now, maybe not. Scientist Joe Natto has seen this race play out in his lab at the Pacific Northwest Research Institute in Seattle. If eggs get fertilized by random sperm, then predictable ratios of gene combinations should show up in the resulting offspring. But Natto has found two examples that suggest fertilization can be far from random. Certain pairings of genes from the egg and sperm, or gametes, are much more likely than others. Natto ruled out obvious alternative explanations. He concluded that fertilization isn't random at all. In a way, it's like the gamete equivalent of humans when we choose our partners. We don't choose our partner at random. There's a lot of selection and choice going on. His hypothesis is simple. The egg could woo sperm with specific genes, and the sperm could impress the egg with likewise attractive genes. The idea is part of a growing realization in biology that the egg is not the submissive, passive cell that scientists have long thought it was. Instead, researchers now see the egg as an equal and active player in reproduction. Natto says it adds layers of evolutionary control and selection to one of the most important processes in life. It's a different way of thinking about inheritance and segregation and fertilization and viability than we're comfortable with. And then there are huge implications. The idea of sexual selection is as old as Charles Darwin himself. In On the Origin of Species, he wrote of the peacock's showy tail and the elk's giant antlers as traits that evolved to help males show off their appeal as mates to females. For the next century, biologists focused on all aspects of sexual selection that operated in the events leading up to the big sperm race. After mating, the female had made her choice. The only competition was among the sperm swimming to the egg. This male-oriented view of female reproductive biology was pervasive. New York University anthropologist Emily Martin pointed out in a 1991 paper that the egg is seen as large and passive. It doesn't move, but is transported along the fallopian tube. Meanwhile, sperm are described as small, streamlined, and active. Renee Furman, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Western Australia, says that sort of viewpoint isn't surprising. I think traditionally females were just kind of viewed as this kind of these passive organisms that had no control over which sperm fertilized their eggs. And I think a lot of that basically just comes down to maybe just not such a great understanding of the female reproductive tract as people sort of started looking at females there was just like this realization that that all these mechanisms can exist 
Beginning in the 1970s, at the height of the feminist movement, science began to change how it looked at reproduction. William Eberhard was among those scientists. He's now a behavioral ecologist at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. But back then, he documented all the ways that females can affect which males fertilize their eggs, even after mating. It's a long list, and scientists still can't say for sure whether they've documented everything. The belatedness of these discoveries wasn't all because of sexism. It's pretty easy to see two male walruses dueling with their tusks. It's not so easy to see games of hide-and-seek with sperm inside the female reproductive tract. In some species, fertilization happens outside the body. Think amphibians and sea anemones. The females often coat their eggs with a thick, protein-rich ovarian fluid. Matthew Gage of the University of East Anglia in England found this fluid contains chemical signals to help attract the correct species of sperm. His team in 2013 exposed eggs from salmon and trout to mixtures of sperm from both species. The egg's own species successfully fertilized 70% of the time, significantly more than you'd expect to happen by chance. Gage says the sperm behave differently in different ovarian fluids. He says they actually swam straighter in their own fluid. Species that fertilize internally have their own methods of what Eberhard calls cryptic female choice. Some female reproductive tracts are like labyrinths, complete with false starts and dead ends. Some females that mate with more than one male can store sperm for months, even years. They alter the storage environment to stack the odds in favor of one male over another. Many female birds, including domestic chickens, can eject sperm after mating. That's right, they can reject a male after the fact, which lets them pick the best male. But all these strategies provide females only with opportunities to select the sperm of different males. Within an ejaculate, which sperm fertilized the egg still seems to be left to chance. The randomness of fertilization is implicit in the principle of segregation, the first law of genetics going back to Gregor Mendel. Parents carry two copies of each gene, which are divided randomly into gametes that carry only one copy. It's what gives rise to many of the probabilities we learn in high school biology. If both parents are heterozygotes, meaning they carry two alternate versions of the same gene, then half of their offspring would also be heterozygotes. A quarter of the offspring would be homozygotes, carrying two copies of one version. The remaining quarter would be homozygotes with the other version. Nato calls it one of the most broadly applicable rules in biology. In most species, that law is fine. It works just the way Mendel said. But implicit in that was that not only are they produced in equal numbers, but they, they combine randomly. That means the probabilities work out only if fertilization is random. If the egg or the sperm can somehow influence the identity of the other gamete involved in fertilization, then those ratios would be different. This striking difference caught Natto's attention back in 2005. When he started looking at the inheritance of two particular genes in mice, the probabilities were all off. He began to wonder, could Mendel have been wrong? Natto hadn't set out to question Mendel. Instead, he wanted to know how interactions between two genes, 
ApoBec1 and DND1, affected risks for testicular cancer. That's one of the most heritable forms of cancer. Nado and his doctoral student bred female mice carrying one normal and one mutant copy of DND1 with males that were similarly heterozygous for ApoBec1. Everything appeared to follow Mendel's rules. So far, so good. But when they reversed the breeding using a female ApoBec1 heterozygote with a male DND1 heterozygote, things got weird. They found only 27% of the expected offspring carried copies of mutant ApoBec1, mutant DND1, or both. They had expected to see 75%. Nando knew a myriad of factors could affect Mendel's ratios. If a fertilized egg ended up with two mutated copies of a recessive gene, the resulting embryo might die early in development. That would alter the ratio of homozygotes to heterozygotes. It would also reduce the average number of mouse pups in each litter. Yet all of their mice had standard litter sizes. They found no evidence that embryos were dying early after fertilization. Nato wondered if the problem was in the sperm. So he bred male mice with and without the mutation to healthy mutation-free females and found no differences in the male's fertility. That would have become obvious if the mutation affected sperm formation. Step by step, Nato and his team eliminated every possible cause of these wonky ratios of offspring genotypes, except one that during fertilization, the egg and sperm were genetically biased against the mutant genotype. Nato thought to himself, surely someone else must have already seen this, so he searched the scientific literature. He could find plenty of examples of unexplained offspring ratios, but no one had seriously pursued genetically biased fertilization as an answer. Nato says everyone had interpreted it simply as embryonic lethality. We see what we look for, we find what we look for, and we interpret in ways that are familiar to us. And so nature doesn't tell us things, but nature shows us things. And so in these cases, here was the data, but it was up to us to notice it, think about it, interpret it, understand it. We're blinded by our preconceptions, and that's human nature. We all do this. The trick is to be aware of it and where you can pay attention to what nature is showing. One of those examples Nato found was from the lab of cancer researcher Rosalind Godbu at the University of Alberta. Godbu studied the role of protein called DDX1 in the development of retinoblastoma, a heritable childhood cancer. Mice that were missing one functional copy of the DDX1 gene seemed normal and healthy. They had another fully functional gene as a backup. But when Godbu and her team bred such heterozygote males and females, they found that none of the offspring lacked both copies of DDX1, even though simple Mendelian math would suggest 25% of them should. But given the gene's importance to DNA replication, this wasn't surprising. The homozygotes without DDX1 presumably died after conception. Godbu's team also found lower-than-expected numbers of homozygote offspring with two copies of DDX1. A complicated series of mating experiments led the scientists to propose that their results came from a rare mutation that had occurred in the DDX1 gene during their experiments.
But Nado wasn't convinced. He wrote to Godbu to ask how her lab had verified that the knockout homozygotes without DDX1 genes had died as embryos. They hadn't. He also asked whether they had considered genetically biased fertilization, wherein the egg preferred to fuse with a sperm of the opposite DDX1 genotype. Nope. Instead, they thought it was just a weird pattern of inheritance. Later, on a whim, Godbu's research partner, Devin Germain, decided to review all the raw data from his experiments. As he looked over the results, he remembered Godbu's questions that had been prompted by Nato's email. Germain says the more he looked at the data, the more that genetically biased fertilization looked like the most plausible explanation. Nato was frustrated at how few scientists had seriously considered genetically biased fertilization as an explanation for their results. So he wrote up his hypothesis in Can Gametes Woo, an article published last October in Genetics. He says his goal was to spur more research into this area. Nato says if we move beyond our preconceptions, we can think about fertilization in a different way, which can lead to very different implications about the process of fertilization. Other scientists say Nato's hypothesis is intriguing and even plausible, but they point out that no one has any evidence about how it could happen. Nato agrees and points to two possibilities. The first involves the metabolism of B vitamins, such as folic acid, which form important signaling molecules on the egg and sperm. Research in Nato's lab has shown that these molecules play an outsized role in fertilization. He believes abnormalities in certain signaling genes may alter how much the egg and sperm attract each other. A competing hypothesis builds on the fact that sperm are often present in the female reproductive tract before the final set of cell divisions that produce the egg. Signals from the sperm could influence these cell divisions and bias the identity of the cell that becomes the egg. Finding data to support or refute this hypothesis could be challenging. It'll depend on showing that genes within the sperm affect their surface molecules and that the egg can sense these differences. Such results will require detailed biochemical studies of individual sperm cells and sequencing information about their genome. Nato is prepared for skeptics. He's encountered many at conferences when he presents the results of his mouse studies and his hypothesis. Geneticist Harmit Malik calls it the ultimate Sherlock Holmesian solution. After all, he says, if you've eliminated the impossible, then what remains, however unlikely, must be the truth. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Carrie Arnold's full article, Choosy Eggs May Pick Sperm for Their Genes, Defying Mendel's Law, on our website, quantamagazine.org.